we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 83 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 15th of February, 2017. And with me again, (laughs) the Rational Razor, Hugh. How are you? Good, Trevor. How are you? I'm very well. I've got to ask, how how did you come up with the Rational Razor as the name of your blog? Oh, I got it. Occam's Razor, Hitchens Razor, Hanlon's Razor. So it was a bit of a a rip-off of those. Right. So um, I thought I, I thought it would be good to try and write about rationalism, um, trying to apply that razor to the uh, divide in ide- ideological politics and people seeming to just come to their point of view based on what their side of the um, political spectrum, what the expected point of view is. Uh, that's that's how politics I th- seems to be prosecuted yeah. these days. Um, so that's what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's why I chose the razor. Okay. And, and how long's that blog been going for? Um, I think about a year and a half. But I took it. I uh, re redesigned. I got someone to redesign the blog. So I lost quite a lot of articles that I had on the old blog. Mm. Um, um, so I recently redid that about three to four months ago. Right. Well, dear listener, uh, it was about a week ago where I contacted Hugh and said, let's do another podcast, and we were discussing various topics, and Hugh came up with uh, number one on his list was how politicians should talk about Islamism, and that was decided about a week ago, and then uh, on Monday night, we had the pleasure of listening to Q&A and Jackie Lambie and Yasmin discussing uh, Islam and Sharia and the talk that went on with that. So it's quite topical that we're, that we're actually talking about this. So, dear listener, there's a bit of a post-podcast edit. I'm just going to insert some audio from this Q&A um, episode so that you know what we're talking about in case you hadn't heard it before. Did you say to the advocate um, in Tasmania uh, that we should follow Donald Trump's example by deporting all Muslims who support Sharia law? Yep, that's correct. Anybody that supports Sharia law in this country should be deported. So do you know what Sharia law is? Yes, but it doesn't what, have Do you know rights. what it is? Me you praying five Sharia law? Of course, do me you? praying five times a day is Sharia. Okay. Right? Like basic... What about the equal rights for women? What, what about... What that about, is completely separate from oh, Islam. Oh, so you can be a Sharia law supporter and be half pregnant at the same time. What Come are you talking on. about? Let's, let's you just, are talking about stuff you don't person. know anything about. Like, okay, I'm not going... I'm not going to attack you personally. What but the, my frustration is that people talk about Islam without knowing anything about it. And they're willing to completely negate any of my rights as a human being, as a woman, as a person with agency, simply because they have an idea about what my faith is about. Excuse me, Islam to me is one of the most, is the most feminist religion, right? We got equal rights well before the Europeans. We don't take our husband's last names because we ain't their property. Right. We were given the right to own land. We are like the fact is what is culture is separate from what is faith. And the fact that people go around dissing my faith without knowing anything about it and want to chuck me out of a country. 
So, Hugh, um, how politicians should talk about... Well, in your email, you said how politicians should talk about Islamism. And are you yes. prepared to make a distinction there between Islam and Islamism? Yes. Yeah, I think I am. I think I'm probably soft, a bit softer on this issue than, um, than the Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think politicians should make that distinction. Mm-hmm. I think the comments that Jackie Lambie made were divisive, wrong, prejudiced. Um, I don't think it should. we should be criticising people for practising their particular version of Sharia law. Mm. Uh, I think in immigration policy um, and when we're thinking about the demographics of our country, we should be talking about letting the sort of people into the country that are willing to abide by the values of the country and... Um, accept democracy, secularism, equality under the law. And I'd make that distinction between, I, I certainly wouldn't say that all Muslims uh, have have uh, Islamist uh, beliefs, and I think the Islamist beliefs, even though they've been on the march in recent decades, are still a minority subset mm. of Islam, and I think that's what we should be focusing on, and that's the sort of distinctions politicians need to make but they, the one that they constantly do make is that they, they make the claim that terrorism has nothing to do with Islam, that um, as Yasmin was mm. claiming on um, Q&A, that Sharia law is really just a benign um, and a positive influence on the world, a force for feminism mm. in the world, as we heard. Um, yeah, I think those sort of, those sort of um, representations are at least um, uh, ignorant. Mm. Um, at worst, they're plain falsehoods and deliberate deception. Mm. I'll, I'll interrupt. I'm all for making a distinction between Islam and Islamism and jihadism. So, uh, dear listener, this is my understanding of the different concepts, but Islam is simply the religion. Uh, Islamism is the desire to impose Islam on non-Islamic societies and jihadism is Islamism through the use of violence or force. So uh, Islam, simply the religion, Islamism, trying to impose it through peaceful means, if you like, on uh, non-Islamic societies, just through the democratic process, uh, and jihadism using force. So... uh, so I think, Hugh, my personal view when we're talking about Islam, and it's, uh, it's relevant to that discussion on Q&A, is it's such a broad church, Islam. And, and really, uh, I don't know if you listened to the last podcast where I, I read that satirical, um, The Kill Alls, created by Gad Sad. And basically, it was a fictitious religion that sounded a lot like Islam, and it was basically saying, well, here are all the tenets of the faith and there are yeah. different groups with... It's, it's not that there's different religion, it's just how much you subscribe to the faith and that puts you into a certain category. So if you follow all the tenets of the faith, then you know, you're a hardline uh, Muslim. Uh, some of them, you're a moderate Muslim, uh, even less, you're a liberal and, and, and really just a Muslim by name puts you in a sort of a cultural Muslim category. And 
really, I think the starting point with with any discussion with people about Islam is to is to make the point that uh, there's different categories of Muslims that we're talking about, and it's not when we use the word Muslim, we're not. In, depending on the context of what we're talking about, we're not referring to all Muslims. It depends on what we're saying, and we need to put a prefix or a, or something to the to. We need to use terms like cultural Muslim or hardline Muslim or Islamist or jihad jihadist. These sorts of terms, because really to say, uh, you know. We want to limit immigration from these countries, somebody might say, because we're worried about Muslims. Well, we're not worried about cultural Muslims. We're worried about jihadists and Islamists, perhaps. So the description for me of just a Muslim or Islam is not specific enough. And wherever possible, we should be trying to to break it down into into subcategories of people that we're really talking about. I mean, when we talk about Christians, we'll quite often break it down into... Mormons, uh, evangelicals, social um, Anglicans, you know, you need to do this. So I, I think that's part of the problem is, is really um, somebody like Yasmin, we'd be saying, mm-hmm. well, you practice mm-hmm. a certain type of Islam. You're, you, Yasmin, are a part-time cherry-picking Muslim. Mm. You don't accept all the tenets of the faith. We're particularly worried about people who are full-time, non-cherry-picking Muslims who accept every tenet of the faith. So, um, so yeah, that's how I would... Um, uh, that's, that's one approach I think that needs to be taken. Yeah. I think the comments that Yasmin made um, are, are more likely to inflame passions of people than the comments that Jackie Lambie made. Mm. To be honest, I, I think peop, a lot of a lot more people would be angry about the obvious misrepresentation she makes than say the um, the silly statements that Jackie Lambie makes. They yeah. both are equally bad. Mm. Well, it's it's interesting. Depending on what news source you read, uh, I think I looked at an SBS article about it, and in the comments section, it was all very favourable to Yasmin and and non-favourable to Jackie Lambie. And, of course, you know, you read the same article in a News Corp newspaper and the comment section will be quite different. Yeah. It's infuriating that that the left is refusing to tackle Islam. As a result, the only people standing up to it are these numbskulls on the right, like Jackie Lambie, who, who are totally unprepared to deal with the... Like, it would only take a half an hour with Jackie Lambie to give her some basic facts, and she could have blown Yasmin out of the water with just a basic few facts, but she obviously didn't have it. No, it's very... It's infuriating, isn't it? And really, people were criticising the ABC for putting Yasmin in this terrible position, and um, there's a... There's a um, Petition up um, criticising the ABC for allowing her to be in an unsafe space. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, all, all of that's going on. Where it really, it's as far as I was concerned, both of them, the ABC put both of them 
they cho- they're choosing people who are both ignorant about the issue and it, but and yet as soon as the the issue was mentioned Yasmin completely fires up then Jackie Lambie fires up even worse becomes yes. incredibly angry um, the only part of it I enjoyed was when Yasmin was um, schooling Jackie Lambie on how it's feminist and it's wonderful and all this sort of stuff. You can see Jackie Lambie just looking at her with an expression that says, no, you're lying. <laughs> you, well, you can see her recognition of that. You might have liked it, but the fact that she then didn't give some examples of how that was wrong is what yeah. really got to me. So it would have yeah. been so easy for her to refer to any number of 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 tenets of the faith from from their holy book or yeah. from what's happening in practice around the world she could have just listed off two or three of these things and said well for one the, the claim that it's the greatest thing that happened to feminism is islam yet yeah. the world economic forum the 10 worst countries for gender equality are all muslim majority countries that's all she had to say and what would Yasmin say in response to that she and her her argument about feminism really was because of what was happening between the 8th century and the 11th century in that women's rights came first in those in Islam in Muslim countries before they did in Christian countries but it it really bears no relation to what what's happening in countries now and it, it's just a denial of the whole um, revival in fundamentalist Islam in those countries. Mm. And you're right, and that's what that's where um, when you see the commentary of this stuff, as you were talking about before, when you see the commentary on News Corp as opposed to The Guardian and uh, SBS, etc., you see this, this basically right versus left divide, whereas almost everyone on the right has this antipathy towards Muslims and Sharia law and all that. Everyone on the left has this tolerance and this attitude that the facts, the facts really don't get in the way of where people, what people write in their opinion. Mm. Sharia law, when you look it up and research it, it's not that easy to get a straight answer either. If you if you have a look at it, if you have a look at it online, you'll see all the hudud punishments, the apostasy by death, the um, theft is having your hands cut off, fornication is getting lashes, all of that sort of stuff. But then it's applied very unevenly over the world and there are, are other aspects of Sharia, which are the praying five times a day and all the other things are involved with it as well. Mm. Um, it's, it's not easy. Have, have you read anything by Bill Warner? Oh, I don't think I have. He's done some translations of of the texts, um, and he said you've got the Quran, you've got the Hadith, and you've got the Sirah. And the Sirah is the is the biography of Muhammad. And mm. his argument is that uh, according to the Quran, in several places, Muhammad was the perfect Muslim and a perfect example of what it means to be Muslim. And the, the easiest way to to point out the bad parts of Islam is to refer to the life of Muhammad and what he did. And that's quite straightforward and, and easy to do. Yes. You don't get into the same sort of binds that you would get if you're trying to discuss the intricacies of Sharia law or even the Quran. It's it's a much simpler process simply to say to a Muslim, well, as a Muslim, do you accept that Muhammad was the perfect um, Muslim and 
if the answer is no, well, you're not a Muslim. And if the answer is yes, well, okay, here are all the things that Muhammad did as described Mm. in his biography, the authorised biography. How can you possibly agree with a religion that's based on that? So... Uh, so personally, I'm sort of well-schooled on the biography of Muhammad, less on Sharia, and that's where I'd be sort of turning people to look towards if they're trying to argue with people about the merits of Islam, is to look at the, the life and times of Muhammad. Yeah. Well, I found it quite unbelievable, the things that she said. when um, She comes from Sudan, so she came over, and she's. it appears that she's come over sometime during during her formative years, I'm not sure. I think she's very um, young, only one or two or something. I think she's very young when she came to Australia. Very young. Okay, so she might not be familiar with um, Sharia in the Sudan, but um, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but um, it's been a cause of civil war in Sudan. It's stoning remains a judicial punishment. Um, between 2009 2012, several women were sentenced to death by stoning. Mm. Flogging is a legal punishment. Many people have been sentenced to 40 to 100 lashes. Uh, several men have died in custody in 2014 from yes. flogging. But you see, she would say that that is a misinterpretation of of the Sharia law and that's nothing to do with Islam. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well that's what about, the argument. What, but this is... This is the application of Sharia law in Sudan. Yeah, yeah, Prior to the, the argument was being because I've had the big row on Facebook all day today. Mm-hmm. The, the that's the argument. The argument is no, no, that's not Sharia law. That, that that's uh, that's the imposition of secular law and misinterpretation of it. But but this is the extremists, um, the Islamists who took over Sudan. This is their application of mm. Sharia law, which includes this feminist um law Mm. that um it allows police officers to publicly whip women who are accused of public indecency well but again she will say that is not sharia law that is that's a misinterpretation of it that's not if if sharia law was imposed in australia that would never happen because it's not part of sharia is what she would say yeah. Well, the thing is, it really is a shame that that, you, that, that gets that gets brought up on Q and A. The show, the way the show is designed, it used to have more informed debate. Now it has a couple of uh, statements where people like Jackie Lambie try to build themselves up into a bit of a lather and get a get a bit a round of applause from the audience, mm. and then that's the end of the debate. Mm. So it gets brought up. And then Yasmin accuses uh, Jackie Lambie of not knowing anything about Sharia law, correctly as it turns out, and and then proceeds to misrepresent what Sharia law is and what Islam is. Mm. So uh, mm. I don't know. It's a, it, it's a it's a shame. But on the other hand, you know, no one seriously thinks that anyone's talking about introducing Sharia law into Australia. It's it's well, not something that's worth worth having an argument about. No, no they're not. But it but it is. You would never have thought that would be the case in the UK either. Well, no, and yet they have the um, those um, they have Sharia courts in the UK. So, yeah. so divorce and other matters for the um, Muslim population around Birmingham are dealt with in Sharia courts within the UK. Mm. I mean, yeah. who would have? 
Who would have thought? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think you wouldn't think that um, would have happened. But then this whole debate that's been going on has been a lot stronger in the UK with the Islamoph- Islamophobia, uh, the Islamophobia report generating over there with the guy who invented that term now publicly disassociating himself from it right. and saying that it's been a, a bad thing and he's totally changed his mind on that issue. But I still don't think, even given what's happened in the UK, I still don't think that would ever happen here. Be- purely because of numbers, Hugh. Yeah, yeah. Be- be- because the border is what it is, it's purely because of numbers. If yeah. the same numbers were here, then it would be on the cards. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if the pop- if there was a significant increase in the percentage of Muslims in Australia, the um, you'd, you'd have to see it would change. Mm. Just uh, I saw one comment in one of these Facebook things uh, talking about Yasmin. Uh, because she said in that argument with Jackie Lambie, she said, on the one hand, people criticise without knowing the religion. And then almost immediately afterwards, she said, Islam to me is blah, Mm. blah, blah. So how... uh, She's saying people don't know the religion, but then she goes on to say that she has her own description of the religion and what it means for her. So yeah, exactly. ultimately you could describe it as anything because it's going to fit the circumstances of somebody. This is the whole thing. You can't, it depends you on, on how many of the tenets you want to subscribe to and how many you don't, where you cherry pick and where you don't. So That's right. You couldn't mm. win an argument with her because it's what it means to her is the only thing that's important. Mm. So there we go. That was infuriating. Um, and... If only there was somebody coherent and educated with a half a dozen statistics on them to um, to really state the case, that would have been great. But uh, one day, Hugh, one of us or somebody yeah. decent will get on Q&A and be yeah. able to say things, and then we'll know we've yeah. got somewhere. Um, That's right. Okay. Um, you also mentioned uh, the case of... Now, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong here, but Mutia El-Zahed. El-Zahed, yeah. Mm. So, dear listener, this is the lady whose um, husband was being charged with some sort of terrorist offences, and I believe um, she was in court. I think she was suing somebody um, in relation to the arrest. Yeah. and in, when it came to take evidence from her, she, um, well, she was refusing to take off. Well, she had the full burqa on. It wasn't just the niqab; it was the full burqa, I think. Yeah, and, it's the full, full with the yeah full thing. Yeah. So we've previously discussed on the podcast the efforts that were um, made to put her in a separate room where she could be videoed from. Uh, that wasn't good enough for her because men would still see her face. And uh, the judge, a female judge, was really bending over backwards to try and accommodate her. And in all of this, um, 
there's the issue of this woman um, refusing to stand uh, when the judge enters the courtroom. And if, if, dear listener, you haven't been into a courtroom, every courtroom in the land, um, you're all sitting there waiting for the judge magistrate to arrive. And when he or she walks in, everyone gets up, magistrate takes their seat, everyone sits down. It just, it's just a, something that happens everywhere. And you've got strong feelings about this one, Hugh? Yeah, uh, look... Probably, I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but I think it's quite unbelievable that there has been some commentary in the media which is suggesting her treatment um, by the courts has been wrong um, and reflects the um, that sort of white privileged view of or racist view of Australians in that... Um, and now that she's going to be prosecuted, I'm expecting expecting some things to come out. But, the, for instance, there was a column by a new Matilda columnist called Michael Brull, um, which argued and pointed out how horrible it was that, you know, she wasn't allowed the religious freedom to, um, to not stand for her evil uh, white um, enemies. Mm. And... And, and then she refused to um, take off the veil so that she could give evidence and that that was bad. But then in the same article, he didn't even mention that she was the wife of a convicted terrorist recruiter, Hamdi al-Qudsi, um, demonstrating an almost unbelievable amount of bias that she's um, she's complaining about police treatment, but then... She wants the protection of the laws of the land, but then she won't. She won't. She refuses to cooperate with those same laws. Mm. So I think the um, that's the irony of that situation. That um, other countries assess um, insist on assimilation. We're we're a we're a very tolerant country in that we don't in, insist on that. But people can't live within a cultural bubble within the country and then expect full protection from the laws of the land but then be able to say what those laws are whilst the law is being um whilst it's being enacted so i think that's the only comment i'd make about that mm. this will come into the discussion about ethics later but we have created a very complicated social system of mutual cooperation in our society where people give up a lot to other people and that relies on goodwill for the system to work. And uh, so that, that goodwill is what binds and glues it all together. And sure, to some extent, we're all individuals wanting to do our own thing. But we do also have obligations to society to respect some basic some basic parts of the glue that are holding this complicated thing together. And that's just one example of it where, yeah. um, uh, you know, it's about respect for the authority of a judicial officer that we are saying we've appointed a person to make decisions and we respect the decision that will come down at the end of the day because we have a, as a society have determined that's our process. And, it's a sign of respect for that process as much as a sign of respect for the judge by just simply standing. It's, it's an acknowledgement that I'm part of the process, I submit to this process, I will abide by the decision. And it's all wrapped up in that. So when you, when you uh, refuse to do that, you are also just 
um, putting down the integrity of, of the judicial system. It sounds overblown, but it's true. It is. Well, it's, it doesn't seem to be much doubt that the whole purpose of her taking this thing to court was to really inflame tensions between Muslims and the rest of society. Mm. Why else would she do that if she's not willing to cooperate with the, um, the laws of the court? Mm. Mm. So, Hugh, next topic. Yes. I've been very keen to talk yes. in a general sense about ethics because, okay. um, as I see it, uh, I mean, we've got issues of refugees, immigration, Islam, multiculturalism, cultural relativism, identity politics, all these things are swimming around as ideas and concepts in our society with all sorts of practical applications. Yep. And well-meaning, intelligent people are just completely opposed in their responses to them. It just doesn't yep. make sense that there can be such a divide between well-meaning and intelligent people. And... Um, I'm saying that um, uh, what we need to do is, is set up, well, some sort of ethical framework, basic rules again that people can agree on that we can then we can um, apply to these everyday situations and see how they stack up against some fundamental moral concepts because yeah. we've lost them. And... Um, I'm going to refer you to, uh, there's a book by Alastair McIntyre. Let me just find that. I'll look in my notes here. Um, Alastair McIntyre wrote a book called After Virtue. And he describes a post-apocalyptic world where science was abolished and then resurrected with the result that people used scientific terminology and learned things by rote but, not, but did not truly understand the theories. So they were talking about atoms and nucleus and, and all the other bits and pieces of science and gravity, but they actually didn't know what it meant. They were just tossing the terms around. And we've reached that stage in society as regards moral thought, Hugh, where okay. rights and wrongs are tossed around, but people have lost... They've lost the true meaning because people don't understand the basics underneath them. So that, yeah. that, that was his view, and I'll talk about him later, and he blames the Enlightenment. But, but I reckon we are, we are kind of in that position where the basic framework has just gone and nobody knows what's right or wrong at a very basic level. So over the next few podcasts, we're going to fix that, Hugh. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, uh, I, might, I might have some disappointing arguments <laughs> <laughs> to present back to you because my views on morality are probably a little bit unusual. Well, I'm, I'm looking. Yeah, you've, you've warned me of that, and I'm looking forward to it. So, um, so anyway, um, I thought that we could look at um, a couple of thought experiments, um, uh, and then we could look at a bit of a bit of history stuff to sort of see the progression of ethical thought and how we got to where we are today. Because it does kind of, to know where you want, to know where you're going, you need to know where you've been, sort of argument yeah. as well. But anyway, yeah. um, you would be familiar with the trolley problem. Yep. Okay. So, dear listener, um, uh, a train is on the train tracks and 
it's uh, it's heading towards five people and it's going to kill them on the train tracks. But there's a switch in the line. And if the switch is thrown, the train will go onto a different line and it'll kill just one person. So you actually have control of the switch and you can pull that lever, divert the train onto another track, uh, save five lives, but kill somebody else. Well, Hugh, what do you do? Okay. <clears throat> well, this situation strikes at the heart of utilitarianism, mm. doesn't it? Because yes. it seems straightforward that given you're a switch operator and all you need to do is pull a lever, that you should pull the lever and divert the trolley to hit the one person so that the one person... Uh, trades off against the five people. So um, the net benefit is is four people um, are alive, or five people are alive, one is dead. Um, however, it's not that... It, it's an argument that I would argue has other moral dimensions, and the reason it's, um, it, it's a famous argument is that it's the variations of it because 90% yes. of people apparently, I, I, you warned me about this so I did read up a little bit, 90% yep. um, of people say you should switch the lever. However, if then the situation Well, well, well let me ask you, what would you okay. do? Have you got an answer? I mean, it's... Yes, if I was in that specific situation and all things being equal, yep. um, if the one person was not a member of my family... That yes. I and the, the the six people concerned were all equal. Yes, uh, I would switch the lever. Sure. So just the alternative situation that I want to put now, because uh, I know you're heading that direction, would be um, rather than a, a, um, a switch in the in the track, the the train there's actually a, a bridge above the line, and the train is heading towards the five people, and you're standing on the bridge next to a fat person, and the variation is that in theory you could push the fat person off the bridge onto the track and that would stop the train and, and you're given the the um, proposition that in fact it will stop the train and don't worry about the physics of it it's it's definitely the case that that by pushing the person off the bridge you will save the five people and the answer you know the question then is would you do that yes and the answer is no, I wouldn't do that. And, 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 dear, and the, dear, dear listener, Hugh matches the general public on this one, and perhaps yeah. you as well as you're listening. But most yeah. people, when this experiment has been conducted, will answer yes to switching the line and no to pushing the person off the bridge. Sorry, go on, Hugh. Yeah, and to explain why is that there's a moral dimension to how you... Um, to switching a lever as opposed to pushing a fat person off a bridge <laughs> onto an onto an oncoming oncoming trolley. There's an element of violence to pushing someone off. There's also the element that um, there's the element that you are in a specific situation more in the second example than you are in the first one because your other option in the second example is to jump off there yourself and. Okay, the, okay. you're tied. No, hang on. You're tied to the bridge, and you no, can't. <laughs> and you can't. You yourself can't throw yourself off the tracks. So let's just make that clear, Hugh. <laughs> <laughs> Do 
could, just uh, could I explain my? Oh, I can't remember where I was going with my point now. Um, uh, uh, but it, it, you're, you're in the situation in that. Um, just just assuming that I'm not tired and I and and I I can throw myself over as well. The fact that you can throw yourself over and stop the trolley by yourself adds another moral dimension, which makes the thought of pushing someone else over in a violent manner to, to fall violently to their death, um, it makes that seem worse. But it also highlights the fact that um, the utilitarian end result doesn't, like, the ends don't always justify the means. The end result doesn't justify it because the moral dimension of what you have to do to get the end result is important. So that comes to other aspects um, such as collateral damage in war and the use of torture in war because in the, the, the first example is quite an artificial example, Trevor, because you're not, you're not very often going to be put into a place where you can do such a seemingly... Um, um, I, I, uh, I agree. What's the word for it? You, you can't just switch, flip a switch to end someone's life unless you're a doctor practicing euthanasia. It's normally going to be some sort of violent act uh, that, that's going to cause that result where you're going to feel like a major party within the operation. Um, so you can't I, I, I agree remove with you. It's, it's an artificial situation, but. Yeah. There is a simple explanation as to why you say, yes, you'll flick the lever, but no, you won't push the person. Yeah. And I'm going to get to that in a second. But before okay. that, one other thought experiment. So this one is the, is the teddy bear one. So Okay. I don't know this one. Okay. So um, there's a burning house and um, uh, your child is in the burning house Um so you rush inside and you grab your child, and oh. uh, you notice also that there's a there's you know your friend's uh, well there's a strange child in there, okay, um, child you never met before but just happens to be there. Uh, you've picked your own child up. Do you, um, as you exit the, you've only got time to act quickly here. Do you, with your spare hand, pick up the other child, or? Do you pick up your child's favourite teddy bear and leave with that instead as you exit the burning house? Oh, you, you, would, you would have to pick up the other child, surely. Okay. Now, instead of uh, a teddy bear, there is... Let me just get this right here. Um, a lot of money. There's a piece of... No, a piece of artwork. on the. Uh, it's, it's your favourite piece of artwork and... It's valued at $3,162, Hugh. So do you pick up the other child or do you pick up your, your favourite painting valued at $3,162? No, the, the other child. Right, okay. So um, now I say to you, well, in fact, every day of the week, you and me and, and almost every Australian is, in fact leaving the burning building with their own child and the artwork, leaving behind the stranger to die in the burning house. Yeah. Because we know for a fact that there are people, young children, dying of malaria, starvation and all sorts of things in third world countries. And Hugh, 
if you go to the GiveWell website, uh, who look at um, charities, and they will tell you that their favourite charity at the moment is the Against Malaria Foundation, and the cost per life saved is $3,162. And there is an enormous amount of research there. um, They provide uh, insecticide-treated nets. Yep. An enormous amount of research to show that that's a pretty fair estimate of the cost. So every day we choose to spend $3,162 or every month on a toy of some sort or some sort of luxury that we could easily do without, yet we know that somewhere out there that money would actually have saved a child's life. Yeah. So that's... um have you read Peter Singer's How to Be Good? No. Um, he makes that argument. I think that example is one of the examples that Peter Singer uses in that argument. Yep. And Peter Singer's also argued um, that we should be taking the maximum amount of refugees that we should take on the basis of that argument yes. as well. Um, however, I think there's a, the, the problem with those examples is that we don't do those things, do we? And the fact that we don't do those things tells us that there's something that's not um, symmetrical or exactly equivalent about those examples as everyday life. And that I think that thing is proximity. And, Spot on. You're exactly yeah. right, Hugh. It is proximity. So <laughs> the difference with the trolley problem was the switch actually divorced us more from the situation than pushing the person over the bridge. There was, there was a proximity difference. The, the person that we're physically putting a hand on to push off the bridge is, is closer to us. And yeah. we, have a, we have a proximate uh, relationship with them. Yeah. The, the, the burning house and the child on the floor next to your own is proximate and, yeah. and our minds say, well, of course we're going to look after this child. Yet the strange kid in, you know, some sub-Saharan country dying of malaria or whatever it is not proximate. And that's, that's the difference. And that's, uh, that's the explanation for the refugee issue, in a sense, yeah. as, to yeah. why, um, as to why we have this view that um, we can say no to refugees is because of a, is a, is a proximity issue. That yes. We're not proximate to them. We don't have the same feelings. And, um, and Hugh, these are... This, I mean, if you were just to force people to ignore all that and force them to have... Uh, consideration for people who are so distant and remote you're just going to have unhappy people because they're not they're going to be miserable because they're actually hardwired not to think that way so so here's a theory Hugh that we've evolved from tribal social groups and collaborative hunting of large animals became more productive than solo hunting such collaboration could only work if profits were shared amongst all the hunters. And apparently, contemporary hunter-gatherers use strict social rules to suppress free riding. 
And over millennia, these rules have become internalised. Our feelings about what is fair and unfair are written down in our DNA. There's a theory for you. Yeah. It's actually ingrained in us through our evolution to, to be willing to cooperate and socialise with our tribe who are close to us and that those feelings will dissipate the more distant people become to us. Yeah. You know what's disappointing about that mm. is that um, we probably, if, if that's something similar to what your view is, then we probably agree to more than, than, um, than what we should to be able to have a decent argument about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, I tend to agree with that, but I think that that have, has um, some pretty serious repercussions for morality, well, if you think well, about it. If you think about... Not necessarily. Okay. Because I think what you then say with the refugee situation, for example, is um, it's, it's understandable people's reactions. What we need to do if you want to solve that issue is you've got to build proximity in. You've got to create connections between people and then yeah. they'll feel like helping. But yes. at the moment, we're so distant from the goings-on in these countries that to us it is just viewed as as a, uh, a refugee creation centre where this will just keep going on and on and we will be flooded and flooded with refugees until we're full and there's nothing we can do about it. We have yeah. no control over what happens in those countries um, and no... So if... Uh, so that's a solution to the refugee issue, though. Yes. But where does, where does that leave morality then? Uh, for, concern, for concern for your fellow man. And how do you then, how do you distinguish between the rights of Trevor Bell and Trevor Bell's family mm. as, as, a, as opposed to the far more important rights of Hugh Harris and mm. Hugh Harris' family, mm. and then the rights of people who live um, a few kilometres from where you live? people from other cultures and then people from other other parts of the world. And, you know, how does, how does morality cope with that? Well, it's, it's very easy to say that there's like a, a series of circles emanating out from yourself. So in the first circle is your family who you will do things for that you will do for nobody in the outer circles. And then yeah. on the circle outside of that are friends and then acquaintances and then you know, going on and on. And basically uh, what you're prepared to do um, for each group dissipates, the, you know, as proximity dissipates. But what you can do is um, uh, sort of for our policymakers and whatever is to recognise that... Um, see, Hugh, you know, a month ago, you weren't in one of my inner circles, but we made contact and now we're talking to each other and, and you've, I'll do things for you now that I wouldn't have done a month ago. So yeah. it's possible I... to bring people into your inner circles and perhaps, uh, you know, that's the mark of a virtuous person would be a willingness to, to bring people into their inner circles as much as possible and create proximity with as many people as possible so that yes. they then have those feelings. Now, that's yeah. not an immoral act at all to say, 
look, I recognise that I have very, very limited feelings for complete strangers over whom I have no ability to influence. Um, yes. And to say, well, what I will do is create uh, avenues of influence so that I can have feelings. I think that's perfectly fine. I agree with all of that. And what I would say, though, that what that shows us about um, morality is that um, I'm a meta-ethical, moral rel- um, relativist. So um, we talk about um, relativism as a horrible thing. But if you think about what we've just been talking about, it's that our personal morality is completely relative to the proximity of other people uh, within our system. And the other thing that I think that Peter Singer um, articulates beautifully is that how do you you work out the difference in morality between other people, between people of different distances away from you and different relational aspects towards you, but then what do you do with animals? What do you do? Do you de- how does your um, moral compass work in terms of other life forms? Does it depend on how sentient they are? Does it depend on how closely they are related to us? Does it depend on what advantage we gain from them? And then we should think about well, what does morality me- mean to things that aren't even sentient? What does it mean for trees and parts of the natural landscape and the earth itself? And um, it seems to me that we place a, an inordinate amount of focus on our own little selves and um, we've, we tend to view the whole, um, the whole of morality through a Christian viewpoint that assumes ourselves as the supreme um, purpose of all life and existence in the universe where uh, if you subtract that, that whole assumption away from it, it really opens morality up to um, being very difficult to justify Um, why it is that we do certain things, only that we do them because of the practical need for us to cooperate. In terms of moral relativism, people go on about it, that there must be an objective morality or else we're in, you know, we're in trouble. We're away with the barbarians. But um, I find it hard to escape from the the, the, um, argument that, morality is relative and that it can't it can't be anything other than relative so i'm falling down a barbarian trap trevor you better save me and explain to me why all of that's wrong (laughs) well now that you've confessed to being a moral relativist you've just moved out a couple of circles (laughs) (laughs) suddenly suddenly i'm prepared to do less moral okay that's interesting, Hugh. Um, well, you see, there would have to be certain moral uh, quandaries where you would say, well, that's on any measure an immoral thing to do. So, uh, oh, um, you know. Torture of a child? Yes, for example. I mean... Okay. You know, so there God, might be God a tribe. God. There might be some obscure tribes people in Papua New Guinea who practice that as part of their culture, and yeah. um, a true moral relativist would say, "Well, that's part of their culture. Um, uh, that's acceptable to them. So whatever suits them is good. You can't, as somebody from another culture, criticise that culture." And in the same way that we criticise regularly Islam for its abhorrent actions, and people say, well, that's part of its culture, 
we as civilised Western people from liberal democracies can say, you know what, um, uh, I, can, I can quite confidently say on an objective level that that's an immoral thing to do, to torture that child. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that objection to the argument that it is, it's difficult to say that you have to look for, you have to look pretty hard for the examples though. You know, you, have, you say torture for a child and both of us would acknowledge, yes, there have been civilizations which have mandated that, in, including Christianity. Mm. Burying children under buildings in their foundations, God telling um, Abraham, um, you know, all of that, all of that sort of stuff, torture of children, dashing their heads upon the rocks, uh, sparing none, all of that has a long theological tradition. Mm. Uh, who am I to, to criticise that? You have to look pretty hard for the examples where, where something is objectively morally true. There's a, a moral cognitivism or moral non-cognitivism, can't even pronounce the word, but mm. it basically says that moral, some, something that's a moral thought is objectively true. I would say that you, it's very difficult to find any moral action which is objectively true. And if you are going to do one, it, it's it's always going to be relative in some respect, as the trolley problem shows. And the other thing to consider is that you can't criticise relativism, or you can't you can't get rid of it as a theory by pointing to one or two examples. the The burden of proof is actually on someone to prove that um, morality is objective, I not that it's I not objective. You and I work in the same um, <laughs> company and we're both right. looking to get a promotion to a certain job and, and I sabotage you by, um, by blaming you for something that went wrong, which you didn't do. In fact, I did, but I do use that as a means of, of scaling up the ladder. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that morally good or bad? Could be. So well, it, you wouldn't be prepared to say it isn't like when you say it's hard to find uh, things to do with honesty and uh, stuff like that. It's well, very easy to yeah. find examples where you can say, well, that's morally a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. Well, most of us lie about 50 um, percent of the time. In relation uh, it, it, it'd be pretty hard lies. to say that. Well, uh, you'd say white lies, but most people, both of, both of us are in the profession where we do sales. Yes. Uh, we, we are um, putting the best, um, the best story that we can put on our product. Yes. Uh, we are presenting a picture of, of what our product is. I, I, I think you could justify saying that you would, you would um, well, tell me then, if mm. in that example you gave, mm. um, you might say that, well, I'm entitled to sabotage the other person's effort to get that job because I deserve it more than them. The ends justify the means. Uh, well, hang on a second. What, you're gonna, you're, you're is, taking the view that I, I'm the one arguing that it's clearly, I can clearly say it's immoral. It's yeah. the wrong thing to do. So, but I'm, why? I'm, I'm not. A, well, uh, but why? Good question, Hugh. But hang on a second. Before we get to the why, y your your initial proposition was that it's just not possible on many occasions to say that something is is immoral. 
I think, yeah, when you and, get and on And I'm closer. saying that there's countless examples, everyday examples. Like, I don't have to look too hard to create trolley problems and teddy bear scenarios. It's just... True. Yeah, but those trolley problems prove that it, um, they demonstrate how relative everything is. They don't demonstrate that morality is... That, that there is a moral answer. They demonstrate how difficult it is once you change the parameters and a different answer... A different answer evolves. Yes, but then they they give you an answer because of the change. So, a circumstance change. If the answers change, where well, you go, well, that's the reason why. Uh, it, it narrows down what why something changes. So, um, so, so you would say that it's it's not immoral to 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 lie and cheat to get a job promotion. I would no. I would say that. It's difficult to justify why you would do that, but I think people could and would attempt to justify and rationalise it in their mind as to why they would mm. why they would do something like that. Mm. You could then pr- pr- promote alternative um, scenarios that, uh, yes, it was justified because this person was someone with a with a bad character who, mm. if they got into that position, would do me harm. Here's an answer then. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Dear listener, we just had a bit of a hiccup where our Scott dropped out, but Hugh was saying, well, why is it immoral for me to lie and cheat my way into a job promotion? And, okay, I'm, I'm working on a theory which is not yet fully developed, but... Uh, if we could, as an ultimate goal, um, talk about the, the, the flourishing progress and success of the human species as our ultimate goal, and everything that we did is measured against that ultimate goal, then on the basis of that uh, framework... I could say to you, well, uh, in order for the species to survive and prosper, we need to uh, foster cooperation and trust between us because that is the method we've used successfully to get out of the cave and into the modern lifestyle we've got now. And by, um, by lying and cheating, I'll actually be, I'll be increasing distrust and therefore, that will be detrimental to my ultimate goal. There you go. Okay. Um, all right. I, I would say that when you're creating an, when you're creating that example, you're creating an example that assumes the immorality of it by the information in the example, because you're saying by lying and cheating to get a job promotion over me, that's immoral. Because no, most of us, most of us regard lying and cheating as being immoral. No, bec- no, I'm saying because it is contrary to my ultimate objective 
which I've described as as the successful flourishing of our civilization, and yeah, I, and I'm saying that, that as a as a uh, a tenet of that, it requires cooperation and trust. So that's the reason why it is immoral. It's not just because I say so. It's because I'm 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 rating it as whether it's positive or negative towards my ultimate objective. Yeah. Okay. Um, I accept all that. So that's similar to Sam Harris's uh, the moral landscape view. Right. I haven't read that. I've seen bits of it, but I can't say I'm an expert. Yeah, it's it's well, it sounds to me like a similar argument. But what you know, just going back to that example, because I think that's an ex- interesting example where you say that if you lied and cheated to get a job in front of me, then that would be immoral. But saying, I think that the example is a little bit um, difficult because you're saying within the example that you're doing something wrong. Whereas if we were both going for a job, would we going for a job be absolutely scrupulous about our honesty in applying for a job? And to what extent is it acceptable for Hugh Harris or Trevor Bell to maybe um, come down on the more positive side in describing ourselves when we're going for that job. So even that example, I think that blurs the line somewhat between lying and cheating to to get that result. And when, when I'm talking about morality, I'm talking about not necessarily our verdict based on our own understanding of what's good and bad but what a what moral principle um, can you justify without its without relativity to the human race or to our relationships within human society if there were no humans there was no morality if humans had different relations within our society then uh, morality would be different as a factor of how different those relationships would be. Well, if we didn't have to uh, work with each other or or um, have connections with each other, we wouldn't need morals, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Or if there's no effect on to... each other, we would, no. we would have no need for morals. True. I agree 100%. Hmm. Hmm. Hugh? Yes. We've reached nearly an hour on this, and we've yeah, barely scratched that. the surface. <laughs> uh, so, I reckon we might. Did you want to have anything you know, really want to add on that scale, or will we pick that up next time? I think it'd be a good idea to pick it up next time. Um, mm. Perhaps if we, if uh, my position on moral relativism isn't a uh, cut and dried position, but just on recently reading something about it in, in anticipation of talking about it, mm. I couldn't see any way around it, to be honest. So I think it'd be an interesting challenge to see if we can discuss and find a way where you can when you where you can justify objective moral values. And the example you gave, which is a little bit similar to what Sam Harris argues in the moral landscape, that. We, sh- we can just measure scientifically the benefit of um, certain actions based on how they affect human well-being or the well-being of sentient creatures. I think that's a good way of doing it. But then I don't think you really come up with any morality doing that, but it's interesting to discuss it. So maybe we could take take that off at that point uh, next time. Yes. I, it sounds like you're tending towards a postmodernist view. <laughs> of some sort. Is that right? That there's no truth? That just depends from your point of view? 
I don't think it's exactly the same as what most people describe as moral, normal moral relativism. Uh, meta moral relativism is more the case that it's difficult to identify the foundations of why something is good or bad. Mm. Um, whereas we can probably recognise that there are ways of organising our society where we need to understand certain things as bad and make certain laws, etc. But I think it's pretty hard to say that in the whole universe the, there are moral truths. Mm. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves if we start to say there are moral truths, particularly given how we described the evolution of humans and how our morals depend on our evolution and our societies. Qu quick thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> there's like an there's like some alien creatures have have discovered Earth and they're kind yeah. of they're wicked, playful characters who just like to throw thought experiments at unsuspecting humans, and and you're the unlucky one. Okay. <laughs> okay. And they've said to you. You know what? We're going to. Um, it's a choice. We can um, obliterate um, Brisbane. Uh, all your, all your, most of your family are in Brisbane. Let's, let's make it Australia. We can obliterate Australia. Yeah. And leave the rest of the world okay. Yeah. We can <laughs> obliterate the rest of the world and and leave Australia. What would you do? Oh, what would you do? You'd, uh, you'd, 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 um, you'd probably sign the rest of the world world off to oblivion, wouldn't you? <laughs> you, you would, but, yes. Well, I don't know. I think you would, wouldn't you? Yes. Yep. Um, you're wanting to I protect. I... You're wanting to protect your own community. Yeah, and it's quite acceptable to do that. Um, I'd agree with you there. I'll give you one though. No, no but let me finish this one. I haven't taken this okay, to the next level. <laughs> The uh, the aliens say, well, what we're going to do is you can save yourself and your family and we're going to obliterate the rest of the world. There will not be enough um, genetic diversity for your species to continue. That will be the end of, of mankind. You will be able to live until old age, but and your kids will as well, but eventually you will peter out uh, and die off. Uh, so that's the option of, of, of saving your immediate family and friends, but in a scenario where you know it's the end of mankind's existence, or sacrificing yourself and your family for the continuation of mankind. Which one do you reckon? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's 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 a terribly mean one, isn't I, it? Well, but but I, I, honestly, I think you'd probably save your own family. Really? Yourself and your own. I, I, I don't know that I feel such a strong evolutionary urge to to protect the whole species. Right. Okay. Well, we differ on that one. I, thought, uh, yes. I, I, I honestly don't know what what you would. I'm thinking about what you would actually do in practice. I think you can rationalise that, yeah, morally, it would be better to save the rest of the world and sacrifice yourself, of course. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure what, how many people would do that, though. Um, but this is, so you back to my, this is just sort of getting back to my theory of ultimate objective to measure things by, whether yeah. it's the success and flourishing of mankind or, as an ultimate goal and measuring moral decisions 
against it's that. The, it's, it's the proximity effect again, isn't it? How, it's very difficult to get yourself out of the proximate um, consideration of your own mortality and then view the whole of mankind and compare those two and come out and come out thinking that mankind is going to be better when when we're our primary instinct is for survival. Yeah, but you see, because I've stated that as an ultimate objective, then it overcomes the proximity issue. So I just go, well, that, that's my end of the day, my ultimate objective. So I'm yeah. I'm accepting that. It, exactly. So relative mm. yep. to the objective that you've artificially set, mm. then yes, that would be that would be your answer. You would have mm. to choose mankind. Mm. But can I give you an example now? Yes, yes. All right, Trevor Bell, you are the switchman. The trolley is heading down the track. You have um, five of the most intelligent, um, sentient creatures in the universe, and then you have um, one human person on the other side but the five are a different species than us. Mm. They are more sentient than us. They are more. They are um, more peaceful. They don't engage in tribal warfare, ideological combat. They will make the universe a happier place. Um, who do you save, the human person, or do you do you, do you save the five aliens? Oh, I think I might be. My gut is saying the five aliens. What does your instinct tell because you? Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking at that stage, the scenario you're describing. I'm thinking we're almost a universal community, so that if they're so sentient as you describe and so nice and so good, it's almost like. It's almost like they have as much in common with me as a uh, as an as an Ethiopian tribesman does. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you've humanised them too much, Hugh, because of your description to me. You... I've I've tried to make them better than humans. Y- yes. So. Uh, so at this stage. Oh, you see, you've got my imagination going. As you know, I've got Star Wars sort of characters from a, from a bar with Luke Skywalker and Harrison Ford, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking there's a bunch of them on a railway track, and then there's just an ordinary Joe there. And uh, to, to... If, if it's a bit difficult though to think that you would save the aliens, you'd have to admit, but but doesn't that draw, bring into question? What rationale you're using to what that when you're talking about morality and saying that the death of five is um, worse than the death of one, mm. by what values are you just determining that on? What what values are you placing on that? That five lives are better than one, depending on what those lives are. The other the other example could be: what if the five people were Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, mm. and the worst people compared to someone of our own family. Mm. You know, you'd save your own family every time. Mm. The, the, the thing about the trolley problem is, the, is it, 
is the difference between the two scenarios where you've got the lever and you're pushing somebody off because that demonstrates the 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 proximity issue mm. uh, the trolley problem gets sticky when you actually um, when they're not strangers and you know people then that brings in all sorts of so you know on the proximity issue I feel perhaps more proximate to the human being and I will save them because I don't feel proximate to these five people but you've described them in such a glorious passionate way that perhaps I do <laughs> like that I'm, you're describing a world where they're mixing with us and they're in the bar and you know one of them's in my soccer team that I play you know like when so, you say that this, this, when you say so, that um the the goals of if, if we took a a, a um, arbitrary goal of morality which would yeah. be human flourishing mm. then Imagine the Fermi paradox, and now there is an alien civilization approaching us in their spaceship, much more advanced than us, much more intelligent than us. They're on their way to populating the whole of the universe. Mm. Um, as they approach us, what are we going to do? Do we shoot them down? Because um, the other the other um, question that comes into um, play is that most that some people think that. The reason we don't see many alien civilizations or any is because um, alien civilizations kill each other. Yes. As soon as they see one, they regard it as a threat, and and they would shoot it down. So the moral quandary that humans would face when an alien civilization is approaching us in the spaceship is, what do you do? What would you do then, and how would you morally justify it? Mm. And therefore, uh, uh, your, your moral prescription of human flourishing, it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. Well, uh, no, that's the question of you don't know what's in the best interests of, of human flourishing. So that's a, a factual problem of trying to work out what, what is strategically going to get me the end result of humankind flourishing. So I don't know whether I need to attack first or wait later and that's a game strategy issue that um i have to weigh up so yes that's it's not a moral one that's a pro that's a decision of um of of trying to understand how to play the game to get the result i want yes but i think you just answered that question by saying that you would assume that your um you're assuming that the, your course of action would be to save the human race or do whatever is the best thing in the best interest of the human race. Whereas what I'm saying is that the overall is that the best thing if both humans and the aliens somehow uh, somehow um, work out each other's differences, if the aliens completely defeat the universe, the humans and have a peaceful universe, or if the humans blow up the aliens. I, I guess I'd be quite happy to work on the basis of hoping for a amicable friendship with the aliens, but if I thought that the survival of the species required something to be done, then we'd do it. So yeah. it would be a wait-and-see so, uh, approach. Yeah, and so in that case, wouldn't our the morality of the situation would be relative on what's in the best interest of our species? Um, when you say relative, the, the objective is to achieve what is in the best interest, and then people can argue how to how to get to that end. So, yeah. 
But the, the morality of the aliens approaching us, their morality with their decision would be based on a different um, assumption. It, it, if they had the same um, moral objective as we do, i.e. the flourishing of their species, that doesn't mean we have to destroy each other so we can agree no. to cooperate. We could. So in your situation, I guess I'd be saying... If they're smart enough to travel across the galaxy and reach us, there's a fair chance they're smart enough to just kill us off if they wish to. So um, in a situation where it's highly likely they could wipe us out if they want to, let's just try and a friendly approach as first as option A. Mm. What to do with the ultimate objective of the flourishing of the species? Yeah. So, yeah. That would be my approach. I think what we would actually do is I think we would try to shoot them down because I think what we would realize is that they're much more technically advanced than us. And when we look at the history of what's happened on earth, when more advanced cultures have collided with um, uh, less advanced cultures, the less advanced cultures have always been wiped out and there's always been diseases and all sorts of horrors that have happened. So the morality of that situation is almost impossible to to figure out. But no, no, no there's no, there's a, there isn't a moral. What's the moral difficulty there? It's clear that you are the going moral, to take the, moral, the. It's it's the decision making that is difficult because you don't know the what ifs. You don't know how strong they are, how they will react, what forces they have, whether they really are trying to kill us or not. Um, yes, so, but you're switching. You're switching now between a morality based on what's in the best interest of the human race, which is the one that I've no doubt that, that most people would, would operate with. And between that and then when you're saying, oh, we should work together and live in peace as a morality of what's best for both parties and what's best overall, we wouldn't operate on the second one. I'm saying that's more, in the circumstances, perhaps the most likely scenario of us continuing to flourish would be to seek cooperation because yeah. if they are so powerful and could wipe us out we should try to cooperate yeah. so uh so you know somebody in the in the face of a terrorist initially is going to just submit and hold their hands up and lie prostrate on the ground to live and fight another day perhaps do you know what i mean mm -hmm. like that's yeah. what we'd be like yeah. So, uh, I, I don't see any. I don't see any moral dilemma in that scenario at all. It's it's a tactical dilemma. What are the tactics, but not a yes. moral one. It's but but it is it is relative to whether we act in our own best interests, we choose that value, or it's relative as to whether we choose to act in the best interests of what's best for uh, the universe. Well, I'm for option A in that situation. Yeah, but it's yeah. relative, isn't it? When we collided with Neanderthals, what was the morality with us dealing with that other species that was similar to us? Was it that we should have protected both species or was it acceptable that we should have wiped them out? And the, mor the moral decision was relative in that case to what value we chose. Um, 
see, I, I would say it's perfectly legitimate for the human race to place itself as number one, and it's perfectly legitimate for the alien race to place themselves at number one. And, uh, yeah, I'm just uncomfortable with the word use of the word relative here. Hugh. Yeah, I, so, way- so am I, because so am I, but isn't it because relativism has been painted as such an evil, weak, postmodernist thing? Whereas, really, it, you have to admit, it is, it's a bit difficult to argue against the fact that it's definitely relative. It's relative to whether we choose our own race or another one. And when we talk about human races, we, we in the past, in past centuries, we were talking about um, races where we felt that where perhaps white people, imperialists or colonists felt that Aboriginals or Indians or native native um, tribesmen were inferior races that didn't have the same rights as us. Mm. I've got no doubts that if we came into contact with, with other species that were similarly intelligent as us, we'd be faced with this moral quandary as to what rights and how can we possibly establish um, who has whether they have equal rights to us. And it's, I think we're just making a value judgment that we're entitled to look after ourselves. Yes. Uh, is that a moral judgment or is that a self-interested survival judgment? That's where I have difficulty with this whole business and how I find it hard to escape from the relativity that's within All right, us. Right, so, so when we come back next time, Hugh, I have to <laughs> mount an argument as to why it's legitimate for mankind, as we Homo sapiens, yeah. to put itself as as its own protection as being a legitimate decision. How about you be the, you be the human race and I'll be the alien invaders, right. and I'll I'll mark my case as but, to why. But you see, I, I won't have any problem with you as the alien race saying that you want to uh, that that you have put your alien race first in preference to mankind. I, I won't blame you for that. But I'm going to okay. put, a, I, I might put a different argument than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Very good. Before we, and when we, before we, we do that, we, we will have to yeah. get through a little bit of history as well, because we have to understand a few terms um, from our history as to where we've got where we are. But anyway, Hugh, that'll yeah, be all okay. next time. So, um, all right. Very good. Thank you for that. Well, uh, thank, thank you, you dear listener, much. for that uh, unusual episode of Iron Fist Velvet Glove, Rational Razor. We shall be back next week with another episode. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe (laughs) on their behalf on their phone. And, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on 
what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.